Today on IFS Talks, we're so lucky to be speaking with Fatima Finney. Fatima is a serial goal setter, lover of new ideas, and imaginative thinker. She is a certified internal family systems therapist and maintains a private practice serving BIPOC, young adults, and people navigating workplace issues. She's a certified administrator of the Intercultural Development Inventory, the IDI, and is a consultant for individuals and organizations aiming to build their capacity and skills for centering diversity, equity, and inclusion in their workplaces. Prior to her counseling and consulting practice, Fatima was an in-home therapist to children and adults and served as a director of a community mental health agency. Through her clinical leadership roles, she cultivated a strong commitment to helping therapists increase their cultural competence and clinical fluency with diverse populations. Fatima is a new assistant trainer at the IFS Institute and will be teaching in the upcoming continuity program on intent, impact, and intercultural competence. She recharges her spirit by playing with her children, taking walks with her parts, and dabbling in creative writing. Fatima, welcome to IFS Talks, and thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you all for having me. Really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks much, Fatima, for willing to sit with us. So what parts come up today during your bio? I think the biggest part that comes up is the part that does like writing bios. Um, and so as I hear it, I'm just like, uh, it's a part of the work. Um, so I noticed that part uh, that came up initially. And um, just the tenderness of just hearing my my journey and my trajectory of like, oh, yeah, like when I first started being a therapist to being a director and just hearing the the transitions um, and, and the times that I said yes to making different things happen. So I'm noticing that of just hearing a little bit of my history. What was it that led you to be a therapist to begin with? Mm. I I was interested in why people do what they do. And I felt that pretty early on, um, growing up, seeing um, my family and my family dynamics uh, and seeing things on television, noting things that um, wasn't happening in my family that maybe were happening in others, uh, noting what was happening in my community and what was what I was seeing was possible for others. So I had this yearning of like, why, why are there these differences? Why do certain people uh, get to do and have access to things? Um, in college was the first time that I was aware of uh, counseling, this place that people can go and just talk to people and tell their business. And I was like, well, that's kind of weird. Um, but I was interested in it. Um, and so I became a therapist, one, because when I finally was like, this might be interesting, um, I didn't see a lot of people who look like me. And so it put me on this path of trying to be what I didn't see. And that's what ignited that. that interest. Fatima and when and how did you come across with the IFS model? I found out about the IFS model 
um, right after graduation uh, from my master's program. Uh, my first job as a therapist, I was doing outreach therapy, going into people's homes uh, and schools to provide therapy. And my supervisor, um, who was supervising me for my hours to get licensed, was an IFS therapist. So I had the benefit of having my cases conceptualized from this framework um, from someone who is IFS trained. And I'm very grateful for Sue Cazolius. I'll, I'll drop her name because she's awesome. <laughs> what was that like for you to start uh, working using IFS and then uh, noticing and maybe working with your own system? I definitely learned IFS for my clients first and didn't initially connect that it had to be for me. Like I felt like it was any of the other modalities that I had learned in school. Oh yeah, you pick this up and you use it with your clients. But IFS is the first one that was presented to me as, um, and, and and presented with a how of, oh, you gotta, you gotta use this on yourself as well too. So the supervisor will ask, well, what's coming up within you? Um, and I think that invitation really deepened um, and reshaped how I thought about helping, um, wanting to help, wanting to be what I didn't see was more about how do I be a therapist? But I think with IFS, it helped me think about, well, how do I be a person in the world that is, um, able to help people and able to connect with them by first modeling it first? Like I was used to, how do I be this thing? Tell me what it is. Let me get the details and almost like, let me step into it like a costume or a performance. But I feel like IFS was like, how do you, how do you embody it from the inside out? And that was radically different. Fatima, and what is this intercultural competency that became your expertise and why is it important? So intercultural competence, um, I I think is important because I think at the core of what many people, especially in the IFS community, but then also um, anyone that's working in healing spaces or just working with humans, I think is what they're trying to do. And it's trying to engage differences in a way where a connection can be made and change can happen, whatever that change is. And so intercultural competence, the definition that I go off of, comes off of the training that I've done um, as a um, administrator of the IDI, the Intercultural Development Inventory. And it focuses on this balance between knowing yourself, cultural self-awareness, as well as cultural other awareness. And so one of the things that I found distinctive, because um, coming up through the therapy tract, learned about cultural competence, cultural humility, um, all of these different phrases that kind of suggest you should know about other people in your work. You should be aware that there are differences. But when I came across intercultural competence in this way, um, it, it seemed to kind of connect that these two should be happening simultaneously at the same time, all the time. So sort of like two, I like to think about it as like two pedals on a bike. In order for that bike to go anywhere, they both need to be engaging in tandem and in rhythm with each other. It's not just, oh, I'm going to know about my clients while I'm in the room with them. I'm going to know about my biases while I'm in the room with them. It's who are you when you're with your family? Who are you when you're with your friends outside of this? It's not something that you turn off. Um, and so 
learning about intercultural competence, I think, really helped um, ground my therapy practice into um, this sense that this work that I'm doing with my client is also work that I'm doing with myself. And they both have to be, um, there has to be an awareness of it, especially when we talk about the larger cultural systems that we live in. Yeah, and why is it really so important in your perspective? I think it's important because those larger systems, um, and I particularly, so I'm, I, I grew up in the United States, that's the cultural framework that I'm coming from, particularly in the United States where there's history of systems that really have preferenced uh, some people over others, have preference uh, white people, white passing, white adjacent people, and whiteness as a culture over people who are not white, all of that shows up in the therapy room. And if we are trying to help people get better, we can't just look at them as, as their individuals and just their symptoms of what's happening in the moment. But what has happened to them and what is happening currently as they as they come to you for those systems. So when we're talking about working with Black people like me, there needs to be a conversation about racism. And the provider needs to have some knowledge about that. How does IFS, how do you use it specifically to address intercultural competence? What I like about IFS and intercultural competence is that I think IFS has provided a model for people to kind of work on um, the difficulty of establishing um, intercultural competence and the truths that come up when you really look at yourself. Because as healers, many people have parts of, I just want to help. I just want to do a good thing. And I kind of want to be rewarded for that. I want my clients to love me for that, right? And there's also this sense of when you look at where you are as a cultural being, and when you look at the cultures that we have absorbed, the meanings that we make, the um, evaluations that we make about people, consciously or unconsciously, all of that is also information that our parts hold and, and it shows up in the work that we do. So if you hold a belief, whether you know it or not, that people who make a certain amount of income deserve certain things or do not, that's going to show up when you're working with them. And you need to know that because the interventions that you suggest, the, 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 the amount of time that you spend talking about other things is going to be shaped by what you've decided was important for this person. So for example, I work with, um, a lot of uh, people who are low income when I started out as a therapist. And there were some beliefs amongst some of uh, working and even some of my own parts about like, what do people like that deserve, right? Like, all right, if you were on a state system, uh, if you're receiving benefits for the government, right? There's ideas about what they should get. Should they be able to get their nails done? Should they not be able to get their nails done? Should they be focusing on this, right? So we have to be aware of, all right, what are our biases based on what we think about people who make a certain amount of money? Because what you suggest in your power as a therapist is going to, inf is going to be influenced by that. 
oh, you shouldn't be worried about these certain things or shouldn't you be spending your money towards this since you only have a little versus allowing them the full range of their humanity to be in what they are and let them decide what's important to them. So that's just a small example. Um, but oftentimes I've heard, heard people say, well, I'm just trying to help them, right? But as we listen, we hear, oh, that's the part that's really trying to help from the perspective of what you've decided help needs to look like from them. That is such a valuable insight, being aware of the energy that's in the room based on your own belief system. Mm -hmm. And so it sounds like a lot of the work you do is helping people peel back the layers to understand what's informed, you know, all the different systems that have informed their way of thinking and being. Um, are there particular challenges that you find that you run into as you begin to have people begin to explore where their understandings are coming from or what's informed their biases? Yeah, I think some of the challenges that comes up for folks is around who I thought I was and who I'm trying to be versus where I actually am right now. And there's a grief and a little bit of a loss in that, particularly when they realize, oh, I thought I was doing this thing. I was trying to do this thing, right? And so now we're talking about what I was trying to do versus what I actually did. And sometimes that's hard. Um, sometimes I think people are challenged if they are used to being socialized at making mistakes have meanings, right? If I make a mistake, it means that I did something bad. If I make a mistake, then I'm not competent and I shouldn't be doing the job. And so those are some of the legacy burdens of perfection, right? That that kind of creep up. And I find that those are some of the biggest challenges people needing to work with. I think I also find now, particularly at this time, again, in the United States in these last two years, uh, in this kind of um, shift um, as we're thinking about race and um, particularly white people really b becoming more aware of their whiteness. Some of the challenges that are there is how to hold truths about a history without being broken down by them. Mm. And so I find the challenge, particularly with white people, is they're either um, overcome with a lot of shame and that immobilizes them, um, or they're kind of pushed into a polarity. Uh, I don't want to be associated with all of these bad things. So all that's coming up, I'm just going to minimize it. I know what it is that I'm doing and I'm just going to stick to my IFS or I'm just going to stick to what I was doing because there's comfort there. And what I'm being called to do is not making me feel good. So I'm just going to go back to safety, right? And so, um, and I think with, with, with people of color, some of the challenges are, um, feeling belittled a lot that there's sometimes it feels like I don't have the space or the capacity to have to do even more. I'm looking for the space and the time just to recover for all that has already been done. And so to be in spaces where you're asked to do more, to learn about the ways that even people of color commit, you know, microaggressions, that can be tough as well. And I think the thread in all of that is that it's 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 hard for people to hold heavy things, particularly when they feel like they have to hold it alone. And so that's why I really offer to people I'm working with with building intercultural competence is that you need community. 
you need to have people who you can, um, as you're trying these new skills on that you can come back to and land with and say, Woo, I tried it and I messed it up and it was brutal. And I, I need to kind of lay back and be restored a little bit from you all so I can get back out there. Because when people aren't in safe community around this learning, they don't want to get back out there. And some don't get back out there. <laughs> but we need everyone showing back up with that courage. And so those are some of the challenges and, and, and some of the remedies that I try to offer to people as well as to myself. I go through the same thing. I'm not exempt. It sounds like you, um, you do the, the, the work with um, intercultural competency that, that we do, you know, with kind of the overarching model of IFS, which is like, bringing people to really uncomfortable places with gentleness, compassion, and like you said, courage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it sounds hard, but it's like, it, it sounds like we have to go there to those dis, you know, the uncomfortable places mm -hmm. in order to find healing and growth. Absolutely. Because one of the things with change is that when we just think about ourselves as humans, we tend to respond to things that feel respectful, that still feel like tenderness, that still can hold me accountable, but in a way that still sees my humanity. And unfortunately, the, his, the, the pains of existing in this world throughout history for people, and particularly for um for Black people, for people who are mar who, who continually are pushed to the margins, that those experiences have activated parts that have concerns about doing any of that with people who who have a history of oppressing them. And I think that's the difficulty at times of like I need to. It's hard to have compassion for someone who historically has not had compassion for me. And so it makes sense that parts are like, I'm not doing it. And even with the model of having self-energy or even doing things like the U-turn, those are big asks. Because if I'm going to look into myself, you are asking me to stop looking at you. And historically, I've had to look at you and know your every move in order to survive. Right. And so it feels like these subtle moments. And I think the model still right. Thinking about, OK, what is the, the, the comfort that people will need in order to do that? And I think communities, right, affinity groups where people can kind of do this stuff and build skills and then kind of come back into mixed spaces can be really helpful. Um, and I do, and I still do believe that it's possible. Um, for this work to happen, for us to know ourselves and to know each other. Um, and the MA and IFS provides a nice kind of framework to do that. How do we listen to parts? How do we listen to concerns? How do we speak for parts and not from them? Um, how do we make space for all of the muck and the, the things that people want to hear? We've seen it over and over again. And I'm like, this is the work. This is what people need in order to do things that in other fields are called conflict resolution and emotional intelligence and all of those things. And I'm like, IFS has this. 
It gives us the language and we've seen it over and over again. So I get excited about linking them. Fatima, we live in a diverse world and we need, as you say, intercultural competency to navigate this diverse world. Mm-hmm. But as we can read in this recent book by Emma Redfern, IFS Supervision and Consultation, she says, psychotherapy demographics continue to be dominated by Western, white, educated, middle to upper class, cisgendered females with Western, white, educated, middle to upper class, cisgendered males dominating leadership roles and by way of being founders, figureheads, and established authors. So currently, IFS demographics narrow things even further by being dominated by and from the United States. Mm-hmm. Do you want to comment on this? Yeah, um, I I agree um, in the sense that adaptation, the ability to adapt is critical and it takes It takes being open to having what feels right for you be different for someone else. So when we think about even IFS starting in the United States and now, or or even over the last few years going globally, being able to say, okay, what worked or has been working here in the U.S. is going to look different because this is not the U.S. So when a training is coming to Portugal or it's being done in any other Europe or any other place, going back to the drawing board of now we're going to, we want to bring this thing here, but who are we bringing it to? What are the needs of the people that are there? What are the cultural uh, contexts that we're going in, right? We can go in knowing what the U.S. is going through in these last two years, but if we get into a training and start talking about George Floyd, and this is how things are going, and this is why we're doing that. It's not going to make as much sense versus if we're talking about what's happening on the ground in that in that country or in that area. And so, um, many ways, difference is presented as a challenge. And I want to offer thinking, give it as more of an opportunity of how can this thing that we benefited from IFS can be bent and, 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 and shift and change and transform so that different cultures, different contexts can get and can, can, can derive from it the benefit that we know is there, the essence, even if it's going to look different, even if they're not going to have, you know, the things that, we, that has worked in the U.S., find what works there and be able to adapt. And going back to intercultural competence, like there's the sense of as people build their intercultural capacity, their ability to adapt their behaviors in a given context increases, right? And so what I love about that is that there's a whole continuum in terms of where people's mindsets are with difference. They either um, have a sense of denial where they're just uh, just unaware of it. They're not able to track much difference from then going into a sense of being polarized by difference, right? We, we hear a lot of us versus them is is either what I do, my way or the highway um, to minimizing difference, right? Sometimes it's like, oh yeah, we all have our differences. We're all there, but actually I want to focus on commonality because that's where we feel safe, right? To then get into a place of, I know that there's differences. I know that they need to be named, but I'm in analysis of paralysis because I don't want to make a mistake. I don't want to say the thing and then I'd be wrong, or I don't want to say the thing and then, you know, 
people weren't even thinking about it. Now I kind of brought this thing in it, right? And so then we 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 increase in our awareness, but then you become a little bit fixated on getting things right. And I don't want to mess up. So I might choose silence to get into this mindset of meeting the moment with an understanding that new things are going to be developed out of this moment. Even with I prepared, I'm open to things changing in the moment because I understand that context matters, right? And so that adaptability to be able to say, hey, we came in to have this conversation. Now we're learning that this is not the conversation that needs to be had. How can we adapt as people build that capacity this goal of growing globally, bringing IFS to different communities, different cultures, and allowing it to shape and be what that community can be. I think as people build their capacity, that task becomes just a little bit easier. Fatima, do you believe the murder of George Floyd was a defining moment in diversity, equity, and inclusion work? Or do you feel like some that we still risk reverting to old ways and habits of being exclusionary and oppressive, that disregard for diversity, diversity, equity, and inclusion can come back? I think that the murder of George Floyd was a defining moment for some people. I think the murder of George Floyd mixed with, with the intersection of the pandemic where people were home and focus and with a lot less distraction was a wake-up call and noticing for uh, particularly um, white people in the, in, the in the United States. I think the murder of George Floyd for Black people and even perhaps other people of color was a string and a whole lot of murders that have been happening. One of the ways that it has landed for me is it's almost like if someone comes out of a house and there's a fire in the basement and they're telling people there's a fire in the basement and no one's listening. And now the fire is on the first floor and we're saying there's a fire and no one's listening. And then now it's on the third floor and no one's listening. And then the whole house is on fire. And those people who are saying there was a fire, there's a fire, there's a fire. Like, I feel like that was Black people. We've been, we've been saying this for centuries, that Black people aren't being treated. But I think the whole house being on fire, that was kind of like what the, the video of George Floyd was for other people. So it was an awakening for other people. And it's kind of like, a, well, I guess we got to take it now because it's finally happening. But it also shows how our voices have not been heard for a very long time. And with that, I do think that there have been shifts in behaviors and demonstrations of change. Um, I think there's been a lot of good intentions since then and a lot of organizations individual, individually and collectively in the U.S. We've been seeing movement that has not happened before. So in many ways, yes, there's a difference that that has created. And I think for those who have the support and have supported themselves uh, with community who have done some of this, let me reflect on myself first. I think it will do and has done a lot towards really creating some sustainable efforts. But I've also seen um, a lot of kind of trauma reactions 
right? People noticing things within themselves, people noticing that they have things and quickly wanting to go to action. What do I do? Let me do the thing. Let me do the thing. Let me do the thing. So people were doing a lot of things. They were joining book clubs. They were writing all of these statements about diversity, equity, inclusion. They were doing a lot. Those parts needed to feel like they were doing something. So there was a lot of doing. But after two years, doing that's not grounded in intention okay. starts to feel like burnout. And so I think that without slowing down of why am I doing what I'm doing? How does all of this that's going on that feels really heavy, really impacting me, my system, my culture, where it is that I come from? How am I complicit in this? What accountability do I need? And what do I need from others without doing that? People just get burned out from doing it. And now they're looking for the next thing to do. And so I think for the first group who have been able to slow down, pause, take courses, get some learning, get community, they probably have a little bit more capacity for sustainable work than those whose parts were activated and started to react even with good intention. Let me do the thing. What's the book I need to read? What's the course I need to take? What's all the things? Let me do the things without really letting things settle within their system. So I think there's at least two camps of people. Okay. But of course, probably oh, way yeah. more. Thank you. Will you say a little bit more about intention? You know, the the intention before the impact and um, the interplay between both. So intent and impact has been discussed a lot. And it even often at this point in time when, when certain words get really popular, it gets to a point where it's just like, it can mean so many different things now whenever someone uses it. So I'll say that when I'm using um, intention, one is getting to the, so intention, and then I'll go into intent and impact. Intention is why am I doing what I'm doing? What's guiding me? What's there? And I think with the IFS model, let me let me run through all the parts because different parts can have different intentions, right? Like, I may have a part that, again, wants to be known as a good person, right? Or I have a part that is driven to, that that wants to advocate, wants to make sure that this never happens to anyone who looks like me ever again, right? Like really getting a sense of like, who's deciding why I'm doing what I'm doing? That's general intention. Then there is the intent versus impact piece of, all right, so I intended to do something. And then I, then there's, how did that land? So I can want to create a course that people are going to get certain lessons from. People are going to, you know, walk away knowing what diversity means, equity means, inclusion means. They're going to feel like they know um, all of these definitions, for example. But the impact, what I learned from the people who take the course is, oh, They actually didn't get that, right? They got something different or the course wasn't as accessible as what I thought, right? So I'm hearing all of these things that I didn't intend to do, but the impact that I had with whatever course I created was that people were dissatisfied or they were confused or they um, weren't able to, they, they, they weren't able to get what it is that I wanted. And in this moment of learning the impact of your intent, there is, It's really important to pause because the course towards what comes next, what are we going to do about that? 
is heavily shaped by how people engage with this moment of recognizing that, oh, I intended to do something, but what I intended to do didn't come across that way. And so that's why I talk about repair microaggressions, because typically we have parts that feel like when someone's trying to say something that doesn't match with my intent, it feels like an attack. It feels like they don't, they're trying to accuse me of something that isn't true for me. And what I like to offer to people is that your intentions can be your intentions. And it's important to know that that is also different from impact, right? Intention is personal and impact is relational. So your intention is what it is that you've done, but the impact that's now in between you and whoever else that intent touched upon. And so repair looks like, let me acknowledge that impact. I wasn't trying to do it, but it happened, right? Let me just acknowledge that impact. And sometimes that's really hard for people because it feels like, well, no, I didn't do anything because I wasn't trying to do that. And it's like, well, age-old example that people give is like, well, if you are walking about in a grocery store and you step on someone's foot, probably didn't intend to do it, but the that pinky toe was still kind of hurt, right? <laughs> like you still did it. And so how do you acknowledge that? And people tend to connect more with that. Like, oh, I get that. I understand that. Yes, yes, yes. But even when we are in these relational moments of like what I said, or you meant this, it gets, it gets to be difficult for people. And I try to offer, just bring that same piece of it, right? Remember that pinky toe. Oh, it's not physically that I stepped on your toe, but something happened here, even though I wasn't intending it. Let me acknowledge that and let's see how we can repair it so that, oh, maybe I do need to update my course. Maybe my slides weren't that great. Maybe all of these different things. And then also maybe there's information that you were missing, right? The person who was impacted and how can we work to get that? How do we side on connection so that we can work through whatever it is we need to work through without this moment becoming a contention a power dynamic of who's right and who's wrong. I know in couples work, it's like, do you want to be right or do you want to be effective? And what I like, that, what shift I make is, do you want to be right or do we want to be connected? And oftentimes in the work that I help with, help people in, it's really essential for people to be connected because either they work together, they're in a workplace, or maybe you're in an IFS training together and you have like five of the modules, right? Connection feels really important, uh, but our parts can sometimes feel like, it's better to be right. Yep. Fatima, what's coming for you in the future? We know you are going to do the opening remarks for day one in the coming 2022 IFS conference. Congratulations. And you will be teaching in the upcoming continuity program on intent, impact, and intercultural competence, right? Yes, I'll be doing the continuity program with um, Jory, um, which I'm excited about. I am also still adjusting to being an AT, so I have some trainings that are coming up as I step into this role. Um, and I think the next year, that's really what I'm focusing on, is how to kind of create these spaces that I'm talking about and also learning and, and, and engaging with uh, these trainings and ways uh, to build my own capacity in this new role. Um, working with shared leadership, because uh, I think in my work um, as a consultant and in intercultural competence, I'm often by myself and curating trainings. And so it's great to kind of be leading with the team. Um, and I'm doing more writing. Um, so I just 
um, a book just came out that has a piece, a creative writing piece. Um, it's called um, Non-White and Woman, 131 Micro Essays from a Woman of Color about how to be in the world. And so that just came out. I'm really excited about that. Um, and I'm writing a chapter on how to use IFS with Black clients um, in an integration book that is also going to be uh, coming out as well. So a lot more writing uh, the end of this year, um, as well as doing some of the workshops um, that I've been doing, microaggressions, accountability and relational repair, where I kind of workshop some of these things that I mentioned here with folks. Um, and also a workshop that I have on culture and conflict and how to navigate uh, some of the things um, that comes up when we're trying to, to to connect with people and resolve some of the tensions that show up with our parts. Well, you will be busy, creative, and hopefully having fun, right? Yes, fun is good. Fun is good. What do you find is the most exciting or inspiring piece of this work for you? What keeps you going and nourished? I get really excited by just talking with people. Like even when I got this opportunity to speak with you all, like there's a part of me, like if I see a name or someone that I don't know, it's just like, oh my, that's just like a whole world I'm about to step in, right? Like we are we're whole worlds within worlds just as people. And I get excited about how many different people my work has brought me to, to how many, you know, people have come to my workshops, people I've done individual consultation with, and even as an assistant trainer, just how many people that you are in connection with at any given point in time um, feels quite wonderful. And at times it just kind of blows my mind about how something, right, IFS can bring in people all over the world together. Like there's this interest of bringing people all over the world. Um, and so that's what really drives me. Um, as someone with multiple identities, like being a Black woman, being a Muslim, like there's a lot that I hold where my identities intersect. And um, there's a lot of needs that my parts still have. And I feel like my work is a commitment I have to my parts of working towards a world, working towards interactions where there's a lot less violence and there's just a little bit more openness and a reflection of beauty and like, just, I see you unconditionally. And that's what kind of drives me in those moments when I see it and I hear it. And even when I see people give it to themselves first, right, as a therapist and even in consultation, seeing people see themselves for the first time without judgment and unconditionally, that just fills me up. Because then it's like, okay, you got it. And I know that when I get those moments, I'm ready to give it and help other people get it. And so it just excites me to see what I think is the potential for just this constant giving of goodness. So Fatima, thank you so much for having us. It was a joy to be here with you and Tisha. And we hope we can keep meeting and sharing this model, our work and our lives. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you so much, Fatima. I'm sitting here with a lot of admiration and gratitude and feeling very lucky that we have you in our way of 
campus community. And I really appreciate all the work you do. Thank you all. I really appreciate the space um, that you made for me, but just the podcast in general. I've already learned so much from um, previous episodes, so I hope I um, add to that collection of, of wisdom and knowledge that you created. So thank you. You did. Thank you so much.